Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 118, introducing Richard II. And so we've arrived at the complex and eventful reign of Richard II, a very contrasting reign to that of Edward III. If we very crudely characterise Edward's reign as one of internal harmony and external success, then Richard II's is the polar opposite internal chaos and external failure. Granted, that kind of ignores the last years of Edward's reign, but hey. There are other changes about the way we look at things. Firstly, and maybe a bit trivially, Richard is the first of our kings for whom we have a proper likeness. Up to now, pictures of kings are just symbolic, a kind of idealised image, fitting in with the way kings are supposed to look. From here on in, we have proper likenesses. More significantly, maybe, now we're into the era of Shakespeare and his history plays. It is sometimes very difficult to remember that Shakespeare's business was entertainment, not history, because he's had such an influence on maintaining the historical view of Holinshed and his Tudor-oriented history of England. And also, of course, because he's so dull. The Shakespearean view, so ever-present that it's almost impossible to throw off outside the rooms of academic and expert debate. Now, I went to the National Gallery in London recently. I have always feared, loathed and detested museums and art galleries. I doubt you have any interest in my personal problems, but as soon as I cross the threshold of one of those places, every ounce of energy, curiosity and enthusiasm is sucked out of me and I become a mumbling, shuffling zombie filled with a sense of despair, incomprehension, hatred of my fellow humans, and a vague feeling of resentment for a world that made me visit this nightmare. 
The only way I've learned to deal with this major character flaw is helped by the fact that I work in London and therefore have the luxury of the presence of some major free institutions like the British Museum and the National Gallery. So I will on occasion decide to go and look at a specific picture or artefact, like the Sutton Hoo treasure for example. Don't get me wrong, I am no culture vulture. I do this once in a blue moon. But this way I can just about manage to get in and out before I turn into something from The Exorcist. I imagine you are wondering why on earth I'm telling you all this. And if in fact you have managed to download the wrong podcast created by some gibbering idiot. Well, my rather weak excuse is that I went to see a painting in the National Gallery called The Wilton Diptych. The Wilton Diptych is one of England's most celebrated paintings. Not to be confused with the Wilton Dipstick, by the way, who's that bloke you might meet in the Swan pub in Wilton? Boom tish, we're here all week. Having said that, I doubt very much anyone down your local will be in a position to engage in a full and frank exchange of views on the topic of the painting, but trust me on this, it's supposed to be a humdinger. What I know about art, of course, could be written on the inside of a ping-pong ball, but this seems to be a common, shared view by the cognoscenti. Anyway, the Wilton Diptych. And by the way, pretty much everything I say by way of interpretation is the subject of much debate and argument. But if I go through all of that, we'll all go mad. And with just the thought of all that debate, I can feel my brain dribbling out of my ear. A diptych, or indeed a triptych, is a portable set of painted panels designed to be used as a focus for prayer, very common and very popular in the Middle Ages. The diptych in question was probably produced near the end of Richard's reign in the 1390s, and it has two panels, hence diptych rather than triptych. And predictably, you can see a picky bit on my website. On the left panel is a picture of Richard. He's kneeling, crowned and in prayer. Behind him are three saints with their symbols. The Saint Edmund of Martyrdom at the hands of Vikings in East Anglia fame, Edward the Confessor of erstwhile King of England fame, and John the Baptist, who needs no introduction from me. Richard's arms are extending upwards, and on the opposite panel is the Virgin and Child, surrounded by eleven gorgeously painted angels, complete with wings and all. One of those angels carries a banner, which has the St George's cross on it, and the wee Ben, Jesus, appears to be blessing Richard opposite. On the outside of the diptych, the decoration is entirely secular. It has Richard's personal symbol, the white heart, sitting in foliage of rosemary, which happens to be the symbol of Anne of Bohemia, his trouble and strife, the Queen. And it has some coats of arms, notably the royal arms of England and France, impaled on the entirely mythical arms of Edward the Confessor. Entirely mythical, since as listeners to this programme know, they didn't do coats of arms at the time of Edward the Confessor. Now I know what you're thinking. Why is this guy warbling on about some dipstick? Well, the painting and its symbolism tells us a lot about Richard and the way he ticks. There's a bit more context to be added here. There had once been an altarpiece in which the diptych sat when it was at home. 
in the 17th century, when it was still in existence, some visitors to the English College in Rome wrote down a description of the altarpiece which has survived, unlike the altarpiece itself, which hasn't. Apparently, it showed Richard offering an image of England to the Virgin Mary with the inscription, This is your dowry, O Holy Virgin, wherefore, O Mary, you rule over it. So one of the themes that comes out of the diptych is about Richard's attitude to kingship. These days, as we watch Kate and Wills wander up the aisle at Westminster Abbey and debate the qualities of Pippa's dress and stuff, we might think it's all great fun and part of our heritage, or indeed we might think it's a load of out-of-date flummery we should ditch at the first available opportunity, but I'm pretty sure none of us would look at the Queen, admirable though she might be, and see the hand of a divine appointment, owner of the land of England in sacred trust from God, surrounded with the aura of God's majesty. But to Richard II and the people around him, and indeed very many people at the time, this was the living, breathing, day-to-day reality. We've talked previously about the king touching for scrofula, the king's evil. At this time in France, the French kings are busting a gut to reinforce the message of divine authority and appointment. While many of the king's barons and subjects took a much more practical, secular view of the king's role as a leader, the idea of a theocratic kingship had been around for some time. But Richard, he wanted to take it to the limit just one more time. So the diptych has this symbolism all over it. Richard is receiving the Kingdom of England from God's hand. And that's where his authority comes from. That's what he's saying in the picture. There are many other expressions of this that come from his reign. So there's a famous painting of his coronation, also posted on the interweb, by the way, which shows Richard full frontal in the manner of those iconic images of Christ, rather than in profile, which up to then had been exclusively the norm. As another example, in 1398 Richard wrote to Albert of Holland. He shares a bit of royal whining, and then describes the people giving him grief as, quote, contriving wickedness against King Christ the Lord. So as far as Richard is concerned, he is appointed by God, and that meant that his subjects have a binding obligation to obey him, come what may, no ifs, no buts. Richard saw any kind of disobedience, however minor, as an act of rebellion. He was a man for extremities. The practical kingship and solid good sense of Henry II or Edward III, for example, was quite beyond him. Another theme relates to his personal piety. There's a faint whiff of the unorthodox about Richard's father and mother. It's very faint, but certainly Edward the Black Prince, for example, was very much more into the cult of the Trinity, rather than the much more common cult of the Virgin. And then Richard's uncle, John of Gaunt, had already made himself very unpopular through his support for Wycliffe and his unorthodox views. Richard, on the other hand, was rigidly orthodox and this goes together with the rigidity of his views about kingship. His preferred cult was clearly of the Virgin Mary, and while it's difficult even by Richard's time to really know what people's personal views were, since everyone pays at least lip service to conventional piety, there's a strong impression that Richard was much more devout than his grandfather. He took his religion seriously. 
Then there's the choice of the saint in the diptych, namely Edward the Confessor. In days medieval, the saints were an important bunch. They were your bridge to God, interceding on your behalf, a bridge between humanity and divinity. Hence the obsession with saints and their relics. Now, you'll remember that it was Henry III, a notably rubbish king, who had really kick-started the cult of Edward the Confessor. And there are parallels between these two confessor lovers. The connection is in their attitudes towards war and their views about their personal responsibilities and dignity. The king's job, as most medieval kings saw it, was to deliver peace in the realm. What Richard took this to mean was mainly internal unity, and his view was pretty absolutist in tone, because for him this demanded three things. 1. The king must be powerful enough to govern. 2. The laws by which he governs should be well kept. And 3. His subjects needed to obey him. Basically, as far as Richard was concerned, and indeed to the medieval mind, unity and peace were incompatible with dissent. So peace, then, was the key for Richard in terms of internal unity, but this was also reflected in his external policy. Just like Edward the Confessor, Richard II wasn't keen on war. This can be overemphasised. It's not actually that he was a no-hoper at war, as he's often presented. His campaigns in Ireland, for example, were perfectly well organised and successful. But he belonged to the tradition of Henry III and Edward II, who sought internal and external peace, rather than the more aggressive search for glory of Edward I and Edward III. There are some other curious aspects of the Wilton Diptych. One is that the angels are wearing the badges of both Richard and the King of France, which would appear odd. One possible explanation is that Richard and Charles were, like so many medieval kings before them, planning to go on crusade. And taking all these things together, Richard's less than enthusiastic approach to war and the desire to crusade with the French king, it gets less surprising that Richard II was never a keen advocate for the war against the French, and not just because the war wasn't going so well. Like Henry III, Richard felt an affinity with the French king, his brother in theocracy. Well, I'm sure there's much more to say about the Wilton Diptych, but let us leave it there for a moment. You take the point, hopefully. A king that is full of his own importance, to a degree not yet seen in England. A man whose extreme views would make him inflexible and vengeful against any who failed to treat him according to his code. A man for whom kingship and membership of the exclusive Brotherhood of Kings was more important than war and glory. It's become traditional for us to take a look at the start of a reign at how a king has been treated by historians, which is where we come back to Shakespeare. And hate it or loathe it, Shakespeare's portrait of Richard has been remarkably robust. His picture of Richard is of a man who starts to play as a foppish, irresponsible young man, suspicious, cruel and with poor judgement. As his fortunes change, he becomes reflective and philosophical. A bit like Charles I, he becomes more admirable in defeat than he ever is in victory. The key theme in Shakespeare's play is very medieval. He wrote the play after he had written Henry VI and Richard III and decided to build on their success by going earlier, 
but linking them to the same theme, the corrosive impact of treason. According to Shakespeare, all the misery of the Wars of the Roses flowed from Bolingbroke's treason against Richard II. And as a result of that treason, the Lancastrian house was cursed, despite the slightly inconvenient triumphs of Henry V, until Henry Tudor eventually came to save England from chaos. Richard himself would have thoroughly approved. By the way, there's a rather nice little story, which has Elizabeth going to see the play Richard II and commenting, I am Richard, know ye not? Which is actually rather endearing, isn't it? Elizabeth obviously saw herself as a vain, capricious tyrant, and history has judged her rather better than she judged herself. Shakespeare reflected the view of historians of the time, such as the historian Hollinshed in particular. These views were that Richard was a tyrant who brought disaster down on his head, but despite the fact that he only had himself to blame, it was the usurper's actions that condemned England to decades of chaos. That same basic attitude continued through the Stuarts and beyond until we get some more comprehensive histories in the 19th century. A French historian, Henri Wallon, portrayed a king brought down by his own poor judgment and his alienation not just of ambitious nobles, but of the whole political community. And then we get William Stubbs, of course. Unsurprisingly, given his constitutional bent, he argued that Richard had tried to act on a theory of, quote, supremacy of the prerogative. In doing so, he had, again, quote, resolutely and without subterfuge or palliation, challenged the constitution. And so it was this that had brought down his downfall, whatever palliation might mean. So the long and short is that Richard doesn't really have any defenders. But since the 19th century, there has been a slight change of tack. So in 1941, Anthony Steele focused much more on the king's personality than constitutional history, and basically suggested that Richard had a psychological condition, a kind of schizophrenia, that meant in his later years he went off the rails. The idea has been comprehensively poo-pooed in a way that only academics are capable of poo-pooing. But the theory left its mark. May McKeesack and Nigel Saul both recognise that whether a medical condition or not, Richard loses his grip on himself in the later years of his reign. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, now that we've looked a bit at the lesser historians, how's about we go back to our touchstones, the Ladybird Kings and Queens of England, and 1066 and all that. I have to confess that the Ladybird book has rather let me down. It mentioned the Peasants' Revolt, and then just leaves it there. No sweeping value statement that sums up the guy, you know, not like Richard the Lionheart and the Breezy, he was a bad king for England line. Seller and Yeatman do have something to say, though. Richard, they say, was the unbalanced king. Here we go. Richard II was only a boy at his accession. One day, however, suspecting that he was 21, he asked his uncle and, on learning that he was, mounted the throne himself and tried first being a good king, then being a bad king, without enjoying either very much. And, of course, we ought to let Winnie have his say. That's Churchill, of course, rather than Pooh. The character of Richard II and his place in the regard of history remain an enigma. That he possessed qualities of a high order, both for design and action, is evident. There is, however, no dispute that in his nature, fantastic error and true instinct succeeded each other with baffling rapidity. He was capable of more than human cunning and patience, and also of foolishness which a simpleton would have shunned. Thank you, Winnie. In their rather different ways, both quotes show that we find it a bit difficult to decide what we think about Richard. We'll see what all of you think, but without wanting to introduce any plot spoilers... I would reflect that from my point of view, we seem to have got to the stage where you don't have to do an awfully lot wrong to get the elbow. And it seems all very different from the good old days of Billy the Conk. Whatever you think of Richard and his motives and talents, and he is a bit difficult to like, it's got to be said, you are also forced to also reflect on the motivations of his leading barons. And tempted once again to reach the plague on both their houses conclusion. I rather like Foissart's story about Richard. He gets quite personal as he speaks of Richard's funeral. So here are a couple of excerpts from Foissart. Firstly, they did love a prophecy in those days, did the medieval men. And Foissart tells a story about how he was at court in 1361 and listening to an old knight talking to Queen Philippa's maid of honour. The knight told the maids about the brute 
the book which was supposed to record the prophecies of Merlin. This is what he said. According to this book, the crown of England will not pass to the King of Wales, nor to the Duke of Clarence, but it will return to the House of Lancaster. So, floating around the place by the time Richard came to the throne, was the unsettling rumour that the House of Lancaster would in some way end up inheriting the throne. Spooky. But Foissard's other comment is probably the most relevant. Now, lords, consider well kings, dukes, counts, prelates, all men of noble lineage and power. How fickle are the chances of this world. Maybe that's all we need to say at the moment, then. Richard of Bordeaux, or Richard II, will ride the wheel of fortune in all her aspects. So, let's get on with the story and see if we can't get through the first few years of Richard's reign. We should start with a bit about his early upbringing, which was in the traditional mould. Provided with a series of tutors from the age of six or seven, and a group of people around him to educate him in the ways of nobility. He would have been taught reading and grammar, and was taught French, of course, but also Latin and notably English. The days of the nobility not deigning to speak the language of the people was long over. As time went by, he'd have been taught music, hunting, horse riding and war. Poor old Richard would gain a rubbish reputation in the martial arts, and certainly, unlike his grandfather, he had no interest in fighting in tournaments. He preferred to watch. But he had physical skills enough. He was a tall man, and was as potty about hunting as the best of them. Richard seems to have remembered his tutors and rewarded them perfectly well, but one of them was particularly significant. This is a chap called Simon Burley. Burley was clearly a big influence on Richard during his upbringing, and until Burley's death was very close indeed to the young king. For Richard, he was the father figure he no longer had. He was a confidant, as well as an advisor, and so he treated him accordingly. At Richard's coronation, for example, it was Burley that carried the little ten-year-old when he was so exhausted he was incapable of walking any further himself. Burley held firm views on the importance and the role of the king and was very probably one of the reasons why Richard held such a high and exalted view about the importance of kingship and regality. The other thing worth mentioning was that there was a group in the next generation of nobility that gathered around Richard in his household. One of them deserves a mensch right now. This was Henry Bolingbroke, the Earl of Derby. He was the son of the Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt, and therefore Richard's cousin, and pretty much exactly the same age. But in temperament, the two lads were not similar. Henry was a very physical lad. From the remarkably young age of 14, he was fighting in tournaments and doing well. He was self-confident in a way that Richard probably wasn't. And he was also something of a reader, something of a culture vulture. His family had links with Chaucer and Gower, he studied at Cambridge later on, he gained a reputation as something of an intellectual. What little evidence there is suggests that Richard didn't really like Bolingbroke. There's nothing terribly obvious that Richard did in his early years to suggest such a thing, and he's perfectly proper. 
but there's an absence of any suggestion of active favour or liking. He kind of did what he had to do, and no more. Once Edward had died, of course, there needed to be some kind of government, and Richard was just a nipper. England hadn't faced this problem for quite a while. It had miraculously avoided the problems of miners for a long while. And to be honest, it wasn't terribly keen on the idea of a regency. And one of the problems with that was Gaunt. He was, after all, the senior figure, the oldest remaining and most experienced of Richard's uncles. He would be the most obvious figure to lead the government or be regent. But he was just too unpopular. Part of that came from his support for John Wycliffe. As we've heard, Wycliffe had become associated with Gaunt's attempt to limit the power of London, and London didn't like having its powers limited. But on the way, Gaunt had also upset the church in the person of the Bishop of London, William Courtney, who would later become Archbishop of Canterbury. I should say a bit more about this bad blood between Gaunt and Courtney. Firstly, Courtney had staunchly supported Wickham in the bad parliament against Gaunt, to no avail as it happens. Secondly, Gaunt was defending a man in Wycliffe whose very thesis was the power of the king being superior to that of the church in temporal matters, and Courtney was nothing if not a staunch supporter of church rights. But everything had been made that much harder to heal by Gaunt's behaviour, which was a bit outrageous. It included his threat at the meeting at St Paul's to drag Courtney out of the church by his hair. Some of this bad blood did die down for a while. Courtney was without doubt a robust figure, well able to argue his case, and not the cipher that Sudbury seems to have been, Sudbury being the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, while Courtney was Bishop of London. But Bishop Courtney was not a troublemaker in the mould of Thomas Beckett or even Simon Langton. He did his best, in fact, to support both Richard and Gaunt, and contribute to the day-to-day governance of the realm. But it's just that he was a stickler for ecclesiastical rights, which, being a bishop, is not unreasonable. Challenge these, and Courtney would be on you like a ton of wattle and daub. So, Gaunt and Courtney healed the breach. And then along came a curious affair celebre, the case of two esquires, Hawley and Chacal. Put briefly, this pair had a right to the ransom of a noble from Aragon, that dated all the way from the Battle of Nehera, but to protect his international political alliances, Gaunt released the Aragonese noble they held. Now the two squires didn't take this lying down. After all, it was a lifetime's fortune for them, and absolutely their right. So they made a fuss, and they found themselves in the tower as a result. From which, as from a leaky old sieve, they escaped and claimed sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. Now this old sanctuary thing was a major pain in the backside for princes, and the constable of the tower was having none of it. Fifty men charged in and dragged Chacal out of the church. Hawley, however, escaped, and he and a sacristan who tried to defend him were butchered on the steps of the altar. The point about this was that Courtney excommunicated pretty much everyone in the government as a result. Gaunt fought back and all of it contributed to a lack of consensus and stability in the government. Gaunt equally was miffed, miffed by Courtney's suspicion that he'd been behind the violation of sanctuary, which originally he hadn't. So he withdrew his involvement 
in the governance of the realm. He retired hurt. A council of nine was therefore appointed by the magnates to run the government while Richard was underage, but didn't include the obvious and most powerful person, i.e. Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. And therefore, the council always had a question mark about the extent of its authority. Against this background, the war went on. Charles V of France's Fabian strategy of avoiding pitched battles had without doubt delivered a transformation after all the defeats of the 1350s and the 1360s. His alliance with Henry Trastamara of Castile had also delivered him supremacy of the English Channel, courtesy of the Castilian fleet, which made life enormously difficult for the English. But unfortunately, his strategy now also began to show its shortcomings. Because it was not an aggressive strategy, it was not a strategy that allowed him to deliver the coup de grace and push the English into the sea. In many ways, it's still the same old battlegrounds. In Spain, Charles of Navarre is still in the picture, wheeling and dealing and trying to keep his tiny Pyrenean kingdom from being crushed between the heavyweights. And in 1378, Charles did the normal thing. Faced with a final defeat at the hand of the Castilians, he persuaded the English to intervene, and an English expedition persuaded the Castilians to withdraw. And so, now nice and safe, Charles promptly did the dirty on the English and went and made peace with the Castilians. This time, though, the English did get something for their pains. Charles the Bad had one remaining possession in Normandy, the port of Cherbourg, and payment to the English for the expedition was Cherbourg. There is a symmetry with the other fickle ally of the English, the Duke of Brittany. The victories of the 40s and 50s were now a distant dream, and in 1372 things had gone so badly that Duke John had been forced to flee to England, leaving little more than the western port of Brest in English hands. But then Charles of France overreached himself. He tried to annex Brittany to the French crown, and by so doing offended Breton patriotism and threw the nobility back into the Duke's arms. Towns like Calais, Cherbourg and Brest were a core part of the English strategy, the strategy of the Barbicans. The idea was for England to hold on to heavily defended key points of access into France, to launch their attacks and chevaucée from. These Barbicans were heavily defended and a constant drain on English resources. All of this came to a head in 1380, when a new English campaign was launched. It was led by Thomas of Woodstock, Edward III's youngest son and the youngest of Richard's uncles. We're going to call Thomas of Woodstock Gloucester. This is despite the fact that he is in fact the Earl of Buckingham and will shortly become the Duke of Omar for a while. But all of these names are jolly confusing, so I'm going to break all the rules and go for the destination title, the Duke of Gloucester. Forgive me, just trying to make it easier for you all. Anyway, the idea of the campaign was that John of Brittany would lead the war in Brittany while Gloucester led a chevaucée from Calais to Paris, back to Nantes in Brittany to hook up with John and carry on pillaging. To a degree, the chevaucée went absolutely fine, plenty of good old pillaging, and although the French withdrew and refused to fight and therefore there was no decisive victory, the traditional fire and sword was visited on French lands. 
and eventually Gloucester arrived in Brittany and the game was on. But the death of Charles V of France and the accession of another minor, the 11-year-old Charles VI, changed everything. In January 1381, John of Brittany suddenly announced that he'd signed a peace treaty with the French and it'd be great if the English could now leave because it's a bit awkward them being around. So poor old Gloucester had to slink back home to Blighty and the English again had been put aside. Through all of this, Parliament had grudgingly but consistently been keeping the money flowing. This wasn't easy. As we've said, the Barbicans were very expensive. Calais, Brest and Cherbourg probably cost about 35,000 quid a year. Then there was Gloucester's expedition, and there was Duke John's expenses, and then there was Gaunt with his claim to the Castilian throne. Gaunt had now gone and signed a treaty with Portugal to take the back door into Castile, and that was going to cost a bob or two as well. All of this meant that Parliament in 1380 had to raise more money, and they chose a poll tax for the task. As we know, they'd done this before and had learned something about the pros and cons. They'd made sure that there was a graduation of charges, which meant the poorest paid less. The 1380 tax ignored all this good learning. There was one flat rate for everyone, and it was a high rate. Parliament had absolutely no idea of the consequences they were about to face. We'll hear all about those consequences next week. In the meantime, thanks everyone for listening. For all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and Facebook. Good luck everyone and have a great week.